Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is podcast number two, and your hosts are John Murphy and Leah Kaufman. We're very pleased to uh, have this opportunity to join you again and share with you some exciting developments in regenerative medicine. In podcast number one, Leah and I had the pleasure of having as our guest Dr. Alan Russell. And as you recall, Dr. Russell explained to us the three principal areas of regenerative medicine as he envisions them, namely tissue engineering, cellular therapy, and medical devices. Leah had the opportunity recently to visit with Dr. Alyssa Panich, and I'd ask Leah to just give us a little bit of insight into her discussions with Dr. Panich. Dr. Panich is working on methods to improve regeneration of the central nervous system, the cardiovascular system, and she's also found what may be a great solution for some devastating intracranial hemorrhages that affect people who are really in the prime of their life. So I really enjoyed our discussion, and let's bring that to you now. We're joined today by Alyssa Panich, who's an associate professor at Arizona State University in the Harrington Department of Bioengineering, and she is working on new methods of tissue engineering to solve some pretty big problems, not only in science, but clinically as well. So welcome. Tell me a little bit about uh, one of the problems that you're working to solve and how you're working to solve that. So we're working on a few different applications. Um, primarily our interests are in central nervous system regeneration and in cardiovascular repair. And so I'll tell you maybe a little bit about cardiovascular repair and where we're going there. Um, we're very interested in how smooth muscle cells function and how the matrix that surrounds those smooth muscle cells um, allows them or, or provides cues for, for function. And so we've been interested lately in how the components of the scaffold or the building blocks, essentially, um, that the smooth muscle cells sit on, what kinds of cues they provide to the smooth muscle cells, and how their matrix mechanics, or the mechanics of these molecules, provides cues for the smooth muscle cells. And so we've actually taken rings of smooth muscle artery and tried to eliminate some of the molecules from the natural artery tissue and looked at how the smooth muscle cells can contract that tissue. Contraction is important for when the heart's beating and blood's moving through the blood vessels. And what we find is if we remove what's called the polysaccharides or the long-chain sugars of the artery, then the smooth muscle cells aren't as able to contract the artery as they were in the native vessel. And so we've begun to be interested in how the interactions between these polysaccharides and the other molecules within the extracellular matrix allow smooth muscle cells to contract the matrix and provide for the mechanical stability of the matrix. So it sounds like by process of elimination, you're identifying the components that are crucial to the functioning of in this case, smooth muscle cell. Right. So we actually had discovered in the laboratory that um, just purely by serendipity that interactions between the polysaccharides and some of the peptide sequences from proteins of the extracellular matrix will come together to form gel-like materials that have consistencies on the order of, say, mayonnaise or jello. And we were, it was a very interesting finding to us. And so then we turned back to the tissue and said, well, what happens if we eliminate one of these components? If we eliminate the polysaccharides, do the mechanics of the tissue really change? And we chose to, to test that through a physiological method rather than through t- traditional mechanical testing. 
And what we did find was, yes, indeed, if we remove one of those components, which I guess isn't too surprising in retrospect, that the mechanics do change. And so now we want to go back and try to understand why those mechanics are changing and why are the interactions important. And would the ultimate goal be to reproduce synthetically these properties so that, for instance, that you could produce a working vessel of some sort? Yeah, that is exactly the ultimate goal. Our hope is that we can, you know, the, the, the vessel itself is a very complex material and there are lots of different types of molecules within the vessel and it would be difficult for engineers to re-engineer that exactly. And so what our hope is is that we can learn what, why the mechanics of the vessels are the way they are and how we can translate that into a much simpler synthetic polymer. And once we've recreated those mechanics that are both static mechanics and dynamic mechanics, then we can start building in some of the biological cues that will allow smooth muscle cells, native cells of the body, to regenerate a blood vessel. Okay, very interesting. Now, I understand a couple of years ago that you um, participated in a startup company, a biotech, so um, my co-founder, Colleen Brophy, who's a vascular surgeon um, and also an avid researcher, has spent much of her life trying to understand why blood vessels go into spasm, and in some cases that spasm can't be broken. And she found that there's a protein that's present inside cells that allows for the blood vessels to relax um, and to release the spasm. And I started working with her, gosh, about three years ago now, to look at therapeutic uses and intracellular delivery of um, a mimetic of this protein. And so um, the first indication that we've been quite interested in is something called subarachnoid hemorrhage-induced vasospasm. And to put that into simpler terms, um, it's a it's a aneurysm in the base of the brain that bursts, and you get a bleed into the the subarachnoid space at the base of the brain. And about five to seven days after this bleed, some people who have this bleed, the vessels of the brain around the bleed go into intense spasm, and the spasm results in a massive stroke and or death. It's a very devastating disease. It happens actually to very young people, often in about their 40s. And these people often walk into the hospital saying they have the worst headache of their life and they do what's called a CT scan and see that they've had a hemorrhage in the brain. And for about a third of these patients, they're slightly out of it, um, but still somewhat responsive. And you know that these patients in five to seven days will have this blood vessel spasm and there will be the resulting stroke and or death. And there's right now no therapy available to prevent that spasm. So it's a very frustrating disease. And we've been working closely with Ellen Shaver at the Medical College of Georgia, and Ellen's developed a rat model to mimic this vasospasm that occurs after the bleed. And what she's found is she can either deliver the peptide intrathecally, which means into the cerebral spinal fluid or the fluid surrounding the brain and spinal cord, um, 24 hours after the bleed but before the spasm and eliminate the spasm in the rat model. Or she can deliver it after spasm begins to occur, simply delivering it IV or intravenously, and um, reverse the spasm. Okay, so there's hope for what otherwise has absolutely no treatment for people who are in the prime of their life and 
and certainly not expecting to be suffering such a life-altering event. That's correct. And so the company right now is going through all of the preclinical um, evaluations that you need to do to go to the FDA to ask to be able to try to test the uh, molecule in man. And for those uh, of our listeners who aren't completely familiar with the long road from discovery to um, treatment, um, I think it's probably safe to say that treatment may still be a decade or so out, or do you think maybe sooner than that? Um, Well, because the disease is so devastating, um, we're hopeful that if all of the animal safety studies go well, we can complete those in 15 to 18 months, um, and then hopefully be able to do first use in man or human, I guess is the appropriate (laughs) word, um, in about 18 months to two years. And then um, by the time we get through phase two and phase three clinical trials, it probably, for so that the general public could use it without being in a clinical trial center, it would probably be more like six years away. Okay. Do we know how many people in the population are struck down by this? In the United States, it's about 30,000 people a year, and about a third of those are treatable. About a third will do fine. They don't require any kind of treatment. Um, and a third, the, the bleed is so bad, there's nothing, unfortunately, that you can do for them anyway. So it's about 10,000 people a year that would be treated. And I understand you're working on a, another problem involving the way we heal after parts of us have been wounded. That's correct. As it turns out, um, this therapeutic that we're working with for subarachnoid hemorrhage-induced phasospasm is also antifibrotic. And so we've shown in a pig dermal wound model that we can inhibit the fibrosis that occurs during um, healing. And so this would have implications for many different um, dermal wounds. So one can think of implications for burn victims who have horrible scarring and contraction of the skin that can cause a, a large amount of of pain um, and uh, dis- and lack of use of joints because of the um, the contraction of the skin around the joints. And then there's another healing process that's called keloid formation, which is a sort of a hypertrophic scar that occurs where you get an exuberant scar formation. And again, it can be just a cosmetic issue, but again, if it occurs across joints, that you can get loss of function of the joints and is also a large issue. Um, and then you can think of the cosmetic market as well. So any kind of, um, of wound that you would get that would scar, you could treat with this to, to inhibit the, the scarring that occurs with that wounding. Okay, but tell me about some of the, um, the less cosmetic implications, implications. Yeah. <laughs> say for um, uh, asthma sufferers or... Because of both the antispastic nature of the therapeutic as well as the antifibrotic, one of the things that we're looking at or one of the indications that we've been looking at is asthma because you get bronchial spasm during asthma and you could get immediate release of that spasm because of the relaxation nature of the peptide. But because the peptide is also antifibrotic, um, there's a long-term issue with asthma that you get a fibrotic response in the lungs over time. And so delivery of this peptide may be able to break the immediate issue of bronchial spasm but also inhibit the, the scar formation that occurs within the lungs. It's wonderful. Great. Thank you. Now, um, I know we're only covering a fraction of what your lab is working on, but I want to ask you to give us a sense of where this field is going and where we might be, say, in five years or ten years in terms of viable clinical treatments. 
So I think with some of the uh, treatments where researchers are using decellularized scaffolds, um, we're a lot closer to treatment that will at least last for, say, 10 to 15 years, whether these treatments will be um, viable long-term is yet to be determined. I'm just going to interrupt you. Um, decellularized, do you mean scaffolds taken, say, from pigs that have been... They're the collagen and the other things in the extracellular matrix that are left over after the pig cells are <laughs> That's are exactly okay, right. Just so we're clear. Because the extracellular matrix, as I had mentioned earlier, is such a complex material, it's hard for us to engineer something that really mimics that material right now. So one of the earlier successes is and will continue to be with these decellularized extracellular matrix materials from, from animals that can then be implemented planted into humans, and by decellularizing them, we don't have to worry about humans rejecting them, the immune responses that one would normally have to worry about with, say, an organ transplant. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we'll see some successes from those over the next 10 to 15 years. I think successes that will allow for long-term treatment where you would implant a scaffold and see complete remodeling of the scaffold, where then you could, say, go back in and you would not be able to see a difference between the native tissue, the original healthy tissue and this newly implanted scaffold, and that's longer away and probably won't be realized in the next 10 to 15 years. It's probably more, you know, 30, 40, 50 years off. But I do think that that's the way of the future. We're starting to understand a lot more about the biological cues within the scaffold as well as the mechanical cues and how those um, influence cells um, to respond the way the body wants them to respond to produce healthy tissue. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, Thank you, Leah. That was a uh, very insightful discussion with Dr. Panich, who, as you indicated, has some very promising work underway. This is probably an appropriate time to remind our audience that uh, we are not physicians, uh, and our intent is just to share with our listening audience uh, some of these exciting developments. It's also important to remind our family of listeners that we're not in a position to uh, diagnose problems uh, over the Internet, either ourselves or our host scientists or physicians. But we do invite suggestions in terms of topics to cover by email. We encourage you to visit the uh, podcast website, www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. There you'll find our email address. You'll also find links to websites of our hosts. As an example, Dr. Panich's website is uh, posted there as well. So uh, with that, we're about to sign off, but I'd invite Leah to uh, share with us who we expect to have as our guest on our next podcast. In podcast number three, we'll talk with Dr. Stephen Badalak. Dr. Badalak pioneered one of the most successful and most widely used treatments in regenerative medicine, and he's going to tell us all about that in podcast number three, coming in early February. Thanks, and uh, best wishes to all in the intervening time. 